Welcome to Speedy Law. Speedy's his name, trial law's his game. True stories of a small town criminal defense attorney named Speedy. Thank you for tuning in. Here's Speedy. Hey folks, George Speedy again, also known as Speedy. Um, practicing law in a small town, Camden, South Carolina. Told previously in my first podcast that I'd migrated down here from Western New York. I spent the first uh, 22 years of my life in New York, except part of it I went to the service for two years. And uh, I do like to tell everybody that I graduated 15th in my class in New York, and that's that's sort of a big deal probably. The only problem is there was only 20 of us. That's part of the reason I believe that uh, I'm a small-town kind of guy, because I came from a small town. I, I learned uh, that there, was always, there are always characters. You run into characters in, in any community, and I think most of you might remember, or at least the older folks out there remember, Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest used to have a, a page. It was usually the first or second page inside the, the cover that said, your most unforgettable character. Well, I have met many of them, but the next story I want to tell you about is one of my most unforgettable characters. His name was Charlie Boone. Charlie uh, became a friend of mine as a result of another case, which I plan on giving a podcast on later. Charlie was a, a former Marine, had been in the, had actually gone in the Marine back in 1958, because he had gotten in trouble in Camden, and the local sheriff of, the, of Kershaw County told him he either had to go in the Marine Corps or jail, take his choice, and he went in the Marine Corps. The sheriff had been a Marine himself. Did good for Charlie, because when he got back, he was a hard worker, very industrious. Uh, he worked at uh, one of the local industries as well, worked there for several years, and they used to tell the stories that he, he would... He would stop at the honky-tonk on the way to work, and he would uh, perhaps get in a fight there. But as soon as the whistle off went off that said that they would was 15 minutes before start time at the, at the factory, he would stop the fight and says, got to go, and jump in his car and go to work. He was a hard-drinking fellow. He, he later on got a job. As, uh, did not didn't get a job. He started his own business running a backhoe, put in septic tanks. He called himself a hockeyologist, a, he was an interesting character. Again, very intelligent, very, very intelligent. He was a union man. He was, very, he was a big union man. He liked unions, although he had only been a member of one for a short period of time. He, he felt they were a necessary part of, uh, of, of society because it even it balanced out the industries against the little guy. He was a big, big fan of John F. Kennedy. He, was, he just had been around. He weighed probably uh, close to 275 pounds, was about five foot six tall. Stopped at every, uh, every honky-tonk in town after he worked, at, worked all the day. His girlfriend would work with him. She'd rake the, rake the stone, and he would, uh, he would run the backhoe. And he was also pretty much a, a rumor monger. That's why he liked to stop at those uh, honky-tonks, because he got all the rumors and then later on would tell me about the rumors. Well, and then he, he was, uh, was home one night, had, had been out a while, I guess maybe shooting some pool, had him a few beers. And he was home, and his girlfriend called him saying she was having some problem with uh, 
with one of her youngsters, and he, well, she wanted him to come over. It was 4 o'clock in the morning by this time. Charlie jumped out of bed, slipped on some shorts, and got in his car. It was about a 12-mile drive, and we got into the city limits of Camden. An officer, a, police, a police officer pulled him over for speeding. Well, the officer said he detected alcohol in his breath and asked Mr. Boone to do some field sobriety tests. Well, on the side, they, where they had been stopped, the banks were very, very steep, and so they couldn't really do good field sobriety tests, so he tried to do them in the road. Fortunately for us, back then they didn't have videotapes, so they didn't videotape anything at, at the scene of the, uh, the arrest. He arrested him, brought him into jail, but in, we were one of the few places in the, in the country, I believe, that had a videotape in the hallway of the police department. They had taken a piece of tape and ran it the length of the hallway, put the, the camera in there, and each time they made an arrest, they would bring the uh, defendant in and ask him to walk the line. He would walk that tape, and then they would judge it based on his ability to ambulate. Charlie, when he did it, he uh, unfortunately was about halfway through and had to reach over and balance himself by touching the wall. We uh, got an opportunity to see that tape, and we prepared for trial again. What we tried to do in most DUI cases is just peck away at the prosecution, just try to, you know, you only stopped him for speeding. Uh, he, didn't have his, he didn't have any shoes on. Uh, what, where, did you find any alcohol in the car? We asked all the questions that might lend some doubt to the fact that he was driving under the influence. You know, a lot of people get stopped for speeding. That doesn't mean they're driving under the influence. Didn't take long again to get to trial. It was a big turnaround back in those days, and we went down to the city court in Camden. When we got there, we did a roster meeting, as we always do, where they decide what's going to be tried, and pretty much everything was taken care of that week, and we were about the only one set for trial. We picked a local jury. We, we, we knew more about these folks than, than I normally would because they were from right here where I had practiced law for several years. And it was a little easier for me to know their, their backgrounds from basically where they lived, where they worked, and I could categorize them and, and kind of knew what kind of jury I wanted. And we picked what I figured was a, was a nice jury. It wasn't necessarily a blue ribbon jury, but it, it was a nice jury. Well, the, they had a prosecutor in this court. He, he, would, uh, he was generally a part-time fellow, and he would, his job was to put together the roster and then try the cases. And In most DUIs, we used to say to each other, to, the prosecutors and the defendants, we could, we could change files and try either side because they were pretty much kind of along the same lines no matter what they were. It's just that the facts sometimes were different in terms of what, what was presented to the defendant dead wrong. And in this case, it was basically that he was speeding, that uh, he touched that wall when he was doing the walk and turn, and that was, I, I would feel like that, and the smell of alcohol, of course. Well, the trial started, and the officer, the prosecutor put the officer on the stand. Back in those days, uh, they would have uh, two two officers involved, and they would have one that would be the arresting officer, and then there would be a second who would be the, what they called the breathalyzer operator. Well, in this instance, uh, Charlie, he decided he wasn't going to take the breathalyzer, so we didn't have that 
element of the case, although they had to put up that, that particular officer to prove that he refused the test. Under South Carolina law, you have the right to refuse the test. You do suffer some consequences. Usually it's a loss of license uh, for a period of time, but it's not a terrible, terrible penalty. It's not like a conviction for driving under the influence. Driving under the influence carries a much more difficult sentence, usually a a rather large fine of $1,000 or more, a, a six months loss of license, going through an ADSAP program, which is a drug and alcohol program, and then carrying SR-22 insurance for three years. So those are the things we had to worry about. It, plus, it hangs over your, over your, uh, over your, uh, rec- your record hangs over you for one or 10 years. That means that if you get a second offense within a 10-year period, then your penalties are are elevated to the general sessions court and you could get a mandatory jail sentence and at least you'd be you'd have a loss of license for one year jail for up to one year and uh, SR 22 for another three years after that loss of license period so it was a, there was no priv- there was no priv- uh, privilege to drive on the second offense and so it was all awful difficult to have a first offense having it hang over your head for that that year period but we we started the trial and the jury looked pretty good to me. The officer testified that he stopped Charlie for, for speeding, and he tried to do some fields of bride tests at the scene, but it really wasn't conducive to that. He brought him back to the uh, detention center, and uh, he got up and showed the jury how, how, he, how you walk the line, how he instructed them to walk the line. Now the, you got to understand, the officer had on what appeared to me to be sort of like combat boots, and he walked with those and walked the line. He always, you know, always hoped that they would fail. I was hoping one of them would just fall over, step off the line, but never had that happen. But anyways, he he displayed how he instructed Charlie to to walk the line, and he said, in spite of that, he said he had to reach over and touch the wall, indicating a loss of balance. That was about the the, the basis of their case. It, it wasn't a strong case. I knew that, and I decided that we didn't need to put. Charlie Boone up. I was able to to get out of the officer what Charlie had said at the scene, and that was that he was on his way to see his girlfriend who was having some problems with one of her youngsters, youngster, her youngsters, and and that that was the reason he was speeding. That he had drank something Ray earlier in the day, but he was normally in bed by eight or nine o'clock, and it was four o'clock in the morning, and surely he wasn't under the influence at that point. Most of that I was able to glean from the officer himself. So I decided that. Best thing is not to put Charlie on the stand. It might not do a lot of good. So we, when we do that, we also get the last argument to the jury. So it seems to me in my practice over the years that anytime I can not put any evidence up, particularly not put my client up, that it's better to have that last argument to the jury. That way the prosecution can't, can't recant what you said and can't challenge what you said, whereas we can so that's kind of what we did. So the prosecutor was forced to get up first and tell why he thought Charlie Boone was guilty. Well, it came my turn. I went through again the the, the, the prescribed law that they had to prove beyond uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, and I said all reasonable doubt as I always did. The guilt, the offense of of driving under the influence that it couldn't be, it couldn't be possibly, it couldn't be probably. It had to be beyond all reasonable doubt. We also went through the through the parts of the driving under the influence statute. I told all the law that that was kind of necessary to make it make it seem like I was coming with a platform. 
It was uh, finally time to get to the facts. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I said, really the only thing that I saw in this case that would give me any indication that Charlie Boone might be under the influence was the fact that he reached up and touched the wall while I was walking the line. You know, they, did, they stopped him for speeding. That's not, that's not necessarily that bad. They, they, they didn't do field sobriety tests at the scene. They smelled alcohol, but they couldn't say how strong it was. So I felt like that was probably the, the key to the whole case. So I said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I said, I think I know why Charlie Boone had to touch that wall that day. I said, the first reason is that you noticed how the officer, when he had those combat boots, that he would put the heel right into the toe and it would give him some support. It was like clicking him together. It would give him some support. He could walk much, much more under control. Charlie Boone had no shoes on. He had no ability to lock his heel into his toe because there was nothing there to help. I said, the second problem is that you have to be able to see. And see, Charlie had one of them old big beer bellies. And I said, he couldn't see over that beer belly to walk that line. And that's why he touched that wall. Judge told us, he said, uh, fellas, the jury went out. The judge gave the charge, and the jury went out. And the judge said, fellas, he said, I'm going to run to the bank. It's only about five minutes, maybe ten at the most. He said, do you mind? And we said, no, sir, we don't mind. Uh, we'll wait here for the jury. And before he could get to the door, there was a knock. Out came the jury, and they found him not guilty. That was uh, That was a kind of a good feeling at the time because I truly felt that Charlie Boone wasn't wasn't guilty of being under the influence. He was guilty of being too eager to help his girlfriend out in a difficult time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Speedy Law. True stories of a small town criminal defense attorney named Speedy. New episodes go live the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Speedy Law is brought to you by Speedy Tanner and Atkinson, attorneys at law, and produced by Patty Rose PR Biz Marketing. We'll see you next time on Speedy Law. Speedy's his name, trial law's his game.